Good morning to everybody. Two important historic sites have come to attention in Richmond recently, both related to African-American history and located not far apart. First, an old cemetery called the Burial Ground for Negroes, and second, Lumpkin's Jail, a notorious place from the final period of the slave trade. For both of these sites, there is physical history and there is social history. As places in the physical world, these sites have been long hidden under many layers. Change to the urban landscape is the way of cities. Since the beginning, Richmonders have been modifying their topography. Samuel Mordecai compared the original surface of the city to waves in a storm, while the surface he saw in 1856 was like their subsistence during a calm. The burial ground for Negroes was a very early Richmond site. It appears on only one map from 1809, and there is little in the historical record about it. Recently, alert community historians called attention to the question of its location when VCU revealed plans to pave a parking lot at 16th and Broad Streets. Did or does the burial ground extend into the parking lot, or is its site entirely under the stretch of I-95 in this image? This early map is from William Byrd II's title book and dates to about 1730. It shows one of the numerous land grants made to the Byrd family. William Byrd II owned some 11 plantations at the falls. In the map, Gillies Creek is to the right, and the central feature is Shaco Creek, which today has disappeared from the map. The branch of Shaco Creek that goes off to the right probably represents the unnamed stream that used to separate Church Hill and Union Hill and was covered over by Jefferson Avenue in the early 1880s. At the mouth of the creek, by about 1720, was a small scattered settlement that Byrd called Shaco's. It was a center for Byrd's Falls plantations, with a boat landing at the height of tidewater navigation, Byrd's trading post and warehouse, and a mill. There was also a chapel, the location of which gave Chapel Island at the mouth of the creek its name. Gathering on Sundays to attend the chapel was likely one of the main bonds of community for early residents of the falls. Among those residents were numerous African Americans. As early as the 1670s, William Byrd I had promised, as a condition of obtaining land, to settle a certain number of people at the falls, including African slaves. Byrd I is known to have owned a ship bringing slaves from Africa in the 1690s. An inventory made in 1746, after Byrd II's death, counted in the 11 Falls plantations altogether some 242 slaves. No doubt, black inhabitants of the Falls plantations gathered at Chaco on Sundays too, some perhaps as oarsmen for the boats that carried the whites to chapel or as wagon drivers, but perhaps for religious services or Sunday school as well. It is possible that the burial ground for Negroes had its origins out of this Chaco community and thus could date back to the bird plantations even before the founding of Richmond in 1742. A town cemetery was established at St. John's Church by 1751. This burial ground was the African-American parallel to that one. 
This is an 1809 map of Richmond made by Rich, Richard Young. In fact, this worn and yellowed sheet is the sole original document that shows the burial ground for Negroes. It is held at the Library of Virginia. In 1932, a draftsman for the City Department of Public Works drew a copy of this original that is the version that people actually use today. This is a section of the 1932 copy of the 1809 map. At upper center is the notation, Burial Ground for Negroes. Here is a closer detail. The faint ribbon that winds from top to bottom is Shaco Creek. The square dot labeled with a capital N marks the gallows. This is likely where the rebellious slave Gabriel was hung in 1800. One imagines the cemetery was not a formal one with assigned plots, but more a corner of the Bird family property that became available because it was not suited for other purposes. A matter of discussion is how closely the words on the map might replicate the area of the burial ground. That no boundaries for the cemetery are shown could imply that it was not surveyed. There are reasons anyway to doubt that the mapmaker in 1809 would have known the extent of the cemetery accurately, given that burials had probably begun before the personal memory of anyone then living. Notice, if you will, the blank space around the burial ground. This view of Richmond was made in 1805 and printed as an insert on the Madison map of Virginia of 1807. It is attributed to the artist St. Memon, best known for his portraits in profile. In this detail, we can see on the left the capital, and to the right what all that blank space on the map was, the steep barren slopes of Council Chamber Hill, today one of the lost hills of Richmond. The Council Chamber itself is the building atop the hill just to the right of the seam, where, according to Mordecai, the State Council had met. As we turn now to a discussion of topography, much of this will have application as well to the site of Lumpkins Jail. This map section shows the location of Council Chamber Hill on the modern grid. The bluff comes along at the front, as the front yard of the Capitol, projects out to overlook Chaco Creek, continues north around the back end of the Baptist Church at College and Broad, then turns above College Street and runs northwesterly. In terms of the burial ground, the steep upper slope of Council Chamber Hill would have presented a natural barrier to its expansion in that direction. This is a map created for a legal dispute over a property line that can help us to think about a limit to the burial ground on the Shaco Creek side. The map is not dated, but was probably about 1800. One of the landmarks used to describe a piece of property was Shaco Creek, but the creek had changed course, and there were different opinions about the location of the boundary. For our purpose, look at the words to the left or west of the creek, just above Broad, where the 1809 map said that the burial ground was. High Bank. Here are some high banks. This is a photograph of Shaco Creek made about 1920 taken from the old Marshall Street Viaduct. The scene is about two blocks north of Broad. 
This space today is partly filled by the MCV Clay Street parking deck that goes down many levels. The photo shows, on the same creek and not far away, what that high bank could have been. Nobody would be burying on a slope like one of these. Burials would have been beyond the top of the bank. Also, note that the bank is not at one consistent height above the creek, but varies up and down. Here is the circa 1800 map again, with High Bank on the west side of the creek. It is reasonable to presume that the burial ground was west of this High Bank. We have all seen plenty of cemeteries on hillsides, but I doubt anyone has seen one in a creek bed. Remember also that the gallows was located at the site of the burial ground. Now in that period, execution was not done privately. It was a very public spectacle, see and heed. The gallows would have been placed where it could be seen, such as on a rise of the land. Thus my sense of the Negro burial ground is that it was on a rise overlooking the creek. There's one more reference to the burial ground in this unusual little book, Hidden Things Brought to Light, by Ernest Wathel. The original edition in 1908 was only eight copies. Wathel was a Richmond printer who made the book in his spare time at work, a few pages at a time, writing it directly in type without a paper original, sort of like blogging in 1908. It is a stream-of-consciousness account of memories of things about old Richmond, things he had seen and things he had been told. In talking about cemeteries, he stated, in digging foundation for old city jail, there were signs of a burial place, and the bones were so large they were classed giants. The jail was built in 1830, and Walthall was not born until 1848. So this is a story he heard from others. This is a 1948 view from the railroad bridge at the bottom of the hill looking up broad. The jail is the white building to the right. The phrase Walthall used was signs of a burial place, which implies that there were a number of finds. When the jail was built, the site preparation required that part of the hillside be dug away for the structure. After the jail was finished, there was further digging to carve a jail yard out of the hillside. It is worth noting that the city sheriff in 1831 requested that the newly dug jail yard be paved with cobblestones. For most of the 19th century in Virginia, this is how a terrace would be carved in a hillside or any large quantity of dirt moved. Horses and wagons hauling earth shoveled by black men. By the 18-teens, the city maintained a full-time road crew of 20 hired slaves. Here is an early 20th century view of the jail, much enlarged since its first construction. The support in front is for the Marshall Street Viaduct, a bridge built for streetcars that ran from College Street by the Egyptian building across Shaco Valley to 21st Street and was taken down in the early 1970s. The top structure of the viaduct, not visible in this image, was essentially at the level of the top of the hill. The city of Richmond used this jail from 1830 to the mid-20th century. 
In this early 1950s color slide showing the demolition, the steep banks in the background suggest how great a volume of earth was removed from around the jail over the years. To an archaeologist thinking about the original 1800 hillside, this is a very discouraging image. This is a detail from the Bates map of 1835, the first printed map of the city. This copy of the engraving is hand-colored and held in the library here at VHS. The city jail is labeled towards the top, and, and, and to its left, up the hill and bisected by the seam in the map, is the Baptist church marked L. Several things are noteworthy. First, the creek in this section has been diverted to the east, to a new bed. Eventually, all of Lower Shaco Creek was improved, meant to run, made to run straight, and the banks lined with stone. Although the old bed shows on the map below the line of Broad Street, above there it does not. A likely explanation is that the earth from the jail excavation was used to fill the old bed above broad and divert the creek. Second, we need to be aware that early maps were often a mix of things that existed and things that were planned. Just because a street is drawn does not mean that the street was actually there. Here, Broad Street, the horizontal street at the center labeled 66 feet wide, is a mix of real and planned. Because in 1835, Broad Street was discontinuous at the steep hillside of Council Chamber Hill. From the east, the street stopped at the new bed of Shaco Creek. This map shows a small footbridge there. From the west, Broad went down only to Mayo Street, just below the Baptist Church. In April 1844, in fact, a request came before Council that the precipice of the eastern end of Broad Street be protected by a sufficient railing to ensure its safety. The next year, 1845, the people who owned the land at the top of Council Chamber Hill came to City Council with a proposal. They wished to lower the top of the hill for development. They proposed to use the dirt removed from the top of the hill to build a ramp to carry Broad Street across the valley of Shaco Creek. The city agreed. The city surveyor was directed to set the bounds and the angle of descent. In this view, we see the inclined plane built in 1845, tested by bicycle racers in 1982. Mordecai writes that during the excavation of lofty Council Chamber Hill, uncovered were vast beds of scallop and other shells, a few shark's teeth, and various unmistakable indications that the hilltop had once been at the bottom of the now distant ocean. So next time you take Broad Street Hill, realize that you are riding on a ramp built by slaves with shell fossils. Another remnant of the ramp project are the stone walls of the bridge over the creek. The bridge was built in 1845 as a stone arch over the new bed of Shaco Creek, so it is east of the old bed. When the creek was converted into a closed sewer in the late 1920s, I suspect the stones from the inner arch were recycled to fill in the arch openings. Two more slides to summarize the burial ground. Here, once again, is a detail of the 1809 map 
compare it to this map from 1830. The lower horizontal street is broad and the upper is Marshall. The map adds one more detail, a gully right where Broad Street would later run. Let us look at this space, the space on this map that the topography suggests. On the left is the vertical blue line of Church Street called College Street today and the Baptist Church. Just to the right of the blue was the steep upper hillside that would have been a western limit to the burial ground. If we imagine steep banks rising from the gully at Broad and from Shaco Creek, there was a raised hillside area between those banks and the steep upper hillside that extended up to the location of the city jail marked as a blue box. Whether or not that site would today reach into VCU's parking lot, one hopes that VCU might find it, still find it the proper course to provide some portion of its lot to commemorate the burial ground. Now we'd like to move to Lumpkin's Jail. Here is a section from an 1865 panorama of Richmond from Churchill by Alexander Gardner. As you can see, the evacuation fire at the end of the Civil War did not reach Shaco Valley. Same image marked with colored shapes. At the top in blue is the capital. To the right in green, the general area of the burial ground. The yellow box marks several jails, including Lumpkins. And the red box is the slave trading area around 15th and Franklin Streets. This illustrated illustration titled Richmond Auction is from an 1834 book called Picture of Slavery in the United States of America. The wood engraving is artful, but it is doubtful that the artist drew the scene from life. Later images of the slave trade in Richmond did appear that were drawn from life, none by Virginia artists, as it happened, and really none by northern anti-slavery artists either. Boston artists concentrated on vilifying Charleston, South Carolina, and other abolitionists portrayed slavery in Washington, D.C. Richmond, on the other hand, was depicted by traveling English artists. The physical site of Lumpkin's jail has a history that is similar to that of the nearby burial ground. But if the social context of the burial ground is the early history of African-American life at the falls, the social context of Lumpkin's jail is the slave trade. The slave trade is an ugly subject to talk about with ob objectivity because to describe how it worked makes it seem like just another commodity market. Nonetheless, we will outline a few main points. To begin with, not all transfers of slave ownership were part of the commercial slave trade. The era of Lumpkin's jail was the final phase of slavery in Richmond, in which the commercial slave trade, including auctions and jails, had a much larger role than previously. Even in the late period, however, the number of slaves who suffered through an auction was only a part of all slaves who were sent to new owners. Here is a painting of a scene at an auction house observed from life by the English artist Eyre Crow, who accompanied the novelist Thackeray on his tour of American cities in 1853. No money changed hands in a large portion of, of slave transfers in the case of settling estates within families and gifts to children and for marriages. Even though payment was not involved, this kind of transfer was still a significant cause of breaking up families, 
which is what happened to Henry Box Brown when his old master in Louisa County died and he was sent to Richmond to one of the sons. A second large portion of slave transfers was the private sale of slaves directly from one owner to another. Over the long history of slavery in Virginia, these two kinds of private transfers, those with no payment and owner-to-owner sales, probably represent the great majority of all transfers of slave ownership. This is a painting detail of a 1700s-style Richmond Tavern. It is important to remember that just as society in Virginia was changing over the years, so was the system of slavery. In the early period, the 1600s, 1700s, and into the first decade of the 1800s, private transfers were the usual. On occasion, slaves were sold at auctions that offered all the effects of a household, such as land, horses, farm animals, and other property, typically held on court days when the monthly session of court attracted people to town. In Richmond, these general auctions seem to have mostly taken place on the front steps of taverns. A second period of the slave trade began in the 18-teens, after the importation of slaves from Africa to the U.S. was banned in 1808. In Virginia, which had the largest slave population of any state, many slaveholders were having difficulty in agriculture. At the same time, the new territories along the lower Mississippi River, known as the Southwest, were starting to be settled as a slave region. Virginia became the biggest source of slaves to the rest of the South, especially through what has been called the Chesapeake-Louisiana trade to the New Orleans and later the Natchez slave markets. In this middle period of the slave trade, running from about 1815 to the late 1830s, the largest Virginia dealer was in Alexandria, the firm Armfield and Franklin. Groups of slaves, young men preferred, were assembled for transfer by ship, as a coffle on foot, or even at times over the mountains to the Ohio and down that river by raft. This is another painting by Crow. This is a wood engraving from the Illustrated London News. Based on sales to the New Orleans market, Richmond saw the growth of an auction system for slaves. Although the majority of slave transfers continued to be within families or by private sales, auctions gained a larger sale, a share. Dealers began to specialize. One agent might have known the the slaveholders in a certain area and specialize in bringing slaves from there to markets like Alexandria and Richmond. Another sort of agent gathered slaves in Richmond and shipped them south. In Richmond, even as auctions became more frequent, they continued to be primarily at taverns. The Bell Tavern, seen here, built in 1802 and located at 15th and Main, was the number one place. On the plat, the Main Tavern is at the lower left on the corner, with an attached storefront, a dwelling, and stables. The attached store was originally a coffee house and in the 1820s became an auction office. It is likely that the identification of the Bell Tavern with slave sales in the period 1810 to 1825 was a big influence in establishing 15th Street as the center for the slave trade. Directly across the street from the Bell was the office of the Southern Literary Messenger when Edgar Allan Poe was the editor. 
We do not know if Poe could see the tavern from his desk, but the slave auctions that Poe surely witnessed were a horror that he never wrote about. In 1846, the St. Charles Hotel replaced the bell at 15th and Main. It is at the far left in this view of Main Street and a flood. The St. Charles was built with slave traders in mind, with rooms that could serve as offices, a large room that could accommodate an auction, and secure rooms where slaves could be kept. In the late 1820s, a man named Bacon Tate opened a slave jail on Birch Alley, an extension of 15th Street north of Franklin. Such a jail operated as a keeping pen for traders collecting a group of slaves for auction or to convey south. The 1833 insurance policy that included this plat covered only the brick dwelling on the property, but not the wooden jail. On the policy, Tate's signature is the middle one. The bottom signature is that of Tate's partner at the jail, Exum Hubbard. Exum Hubbard held auctions at the Bell Tavern for horses and slaves. In the mid-1830s, Hubbard leased the Union Hotel at 19th and Main and its stables, and apparently ran his, ran his auction business out of it. The Union Hotel had a unique history. After the Civil War, the school for blacks that had been founded in the former Lumpkins Jail moved to the Union Hotel for several years before moving to Northside as Virginia Union. Before that, Hampton Sydney College rented the Union Hotel as the location for its medical school, which became MCV. In fact, VCU's official founding date of 1838 is based on the year that the medical school occupied the Union Hotel right after Exum Hubbard and his slave trading enterprise vacated the premises. So there are, there are two Richmond universities that originated in former slave trading facilities. This building is by the English artist, this painting is by the English art, artist Lefevre Cranstone. The final period of the Richmond slave trade from about 1837 to 1865 is the most familiar because visitors to Richmond wrote about it and artists documented the scene. Red flags hung in front of places that were holding an auction that day, and the sales were timed to follow one after the other. Clothing dealers specialized in dressing slaves for auctions so they would look their best, as this painting shows. And before and after sales, the slaves were boarded in jails in the neighborhood. This section from the Gardner Panorama is the area around 15th and Franklin Streets, the center of the slave trade in the late period. Under the cyan line on the left is the east side of the St. Charles Hotel at 15th and Main, occupying the site of the earlier Bell Tavern. Under the yellow line is the Exchange Hotel at 14th and Franklin Streets, capped by a cupola, a famous and fancy place that was patronized by the more flush slave dealers who were said to favor its saloon. Moving down Franklin Street are two of the main auction halls. Under the red line is Oddfellows Hall, and under the blue line is Dickinson and Hill. This is the Oddfellows Hall, one of the main auction sites. Located at the corner of Franklin and Mayo, it was photographed in 1922. In the era before the Civil War, the upper hall 
was used for shows and entertainments, and the lower floor rented for slave auctions. This interior of the Odd Fellows Hall was taken in 1895 by John Mitchell, editor of the Richmond Planet, when the hall was used for city police court. The image is reproduced from the Planet and is the only photographic image I am aware of showing the inside of a Richmond auction facility. Defense lawyer Giles Jackson is seated center front, and in the back at center is Justice John Crutchfield. This view is up Franklin Street from Main Street Station in 1948. Up the block on the right side of the street where a truck is turning is Mayo Street. Little from the slave trade era survived in 1948. At the corner of 15th Street, where the Industrial Supply Building stands in this image, was the site of Dickinson and Hill's office, the northwest corner of 15th and Franklin. In 1856, Dickinson and Hill claimed $2 million worth of slaves sold, half of Richmond's sales to the Louisiana market. At the back of this building was a one-story addition that was a holding pen. A few doors up Franklin was Hector Davis, another big dealer. Here is another 1865 view from Church Hill, this one by the Union Army photographer Andrew J. Russell. This view is available online from the Library of Congress, in a file big enough to blow up small sections. If we look down Grace, which is the street that goes away from the camera on the left, to where it ends at the bottom of the hill, we have this collection of slave pens. The buildings above face Mayo Street, and below is Birch Alley. At lower right is the Lumpkin Jail Complex. Here's the best-known image of Lumpkins, an engraving of the jail building from an 1895 book about the school founded there, which became Virginia Union. In this view, the building with the green line is Lumpkins' house. The blue line marks the hotel where the traders stayed. The red line marks the kitchen that fed the complex. The magenta line in the front marks the side of the jail seen in the engraving, which faces to the right and the yellow lines to either side mark high wooden fences around the yard. Just to the south of Lumpkins is this complex, which with its high wooden fences and two structures that resemble the jail in the engraving was clearly another jail complex. Insurance records suggest that it was the jail owned by George Washington Atkinson. Here are backyards of houses just above Atkinson's on Mayo Street. The right half of the double house that is left of the alley was the residence of the dealer Dickinson. In the yard of the double house is a double kitchen. And perched on the edge of the hillside is a boxy wooden structure supported by four legs. The volume of Dickinson's sales of slaves in the late 1850s suggests that this shed was a holding pen for slaves. In the 1890s, the Lumpkin site was covered by Richmond Ironworks. The stone-lined Shaco Creek is in the foreground, and above the plant are the buildings on Mayo Street up the hill. The partners at Richmond Ironworks were Chamblin, Delaney, and Scott. 
the last of whom was the father of Richmond historian and preservationist, Mary Wingfield Scott. The site was covered a second time around 1909 by the Seaboard Railroad Freight Yard, photographed in 1948. The railroad brought in much fill and raised the ground level to its present height of 7 to 15 feet above the original surface level. Here is an aerial view of this area in 1948. Broad Street runs diagonally across the center of the image, and the roof of Main Street Station pokes into the frame at the upper right. The Baptist Church is at lower left. Above it is the jail. The long, almost horizontal rectangle at right center is the roof of the Seaboard Freight Building. The site of Lumpkins is underneath the left end of the building. This 1950s view looks north of Broad Street during the construction of Interstate 95. Notice the level of fill relative to the, to the support for the Marshall Street Viaduct. This was a much altered area in the 19th century and in the 20th too. And so we are back to the present more or less with this 1984 view. Thank you.